Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, a little sleepy. I was up uh, last night launching my Igwet uh, web app that uh-huh. we discussed a couple of episodes ago. Um, I actually have a paying customer. My church is using it to manage reservations since uh, they have a strict county-imposed limit to how many people can show up for church services. And so I was able to adapt what I already built to add that functionality. And uh, hopefully they'll be using that this weekend. We'll find out. Is it, uh, is, it, is it a way to find out who attended or who's going to attend or to keep uh, Yes, it's, it's where people can say, I am attending and there'll be three people from our family. And then it just keeps a counter so that if, if there's more than um, that number of people attending, it'll say, sorry. And so in theory, you will have more people showing up than you're allowed to have. Oh. Is this having to do with uh, COVID and 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 all that? You know, not having uh, too many people gather, like around ten, or is it something right? Else? Yeah. So they 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 uh, they recommend less than ten, but the the county guidelines are now that for church services they can have uh, sixty people, in at least in Santa Clara County. Hmm. So anyway, it it was nice. Um, nice to have an actual customer. So, yeah, that, that yeah, that's... two other things. Yeah, that's a great uh, um, milestone. Yeah, I also had uh, speaking of milestones, I also pitched Igwet as a chatbot service to the uh, the Great Reset community, and they uh, about half the people responded very enthusiastically and offer to chip in a few dollars to cover the hosting costs. So that's my next project is um, setting up that as a chat bot. So I'm hoping between a directory service and a chat bot, this may actually turn into a real thing. Uh, we will see. Oh, and as, as a related note, one of the people on the Great Reset is actually going to be doing a, uh, a relational practice uh, next Tuesday. Uh, and the goal is to start, uh, you know, at least experimenting with that as a format for here's a relational skill you want to get better at and go through a series of exercises where we can role play those out. And it's based on a, a book um, called, uh, what was the name of it again? I'm a browser history here. It's, um, It was uh, called Humpty Dumpty, um, something about hope and healing for Humpty Dumpty. Uh, you familiar with the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, had a great fall? Yeah. Uh, yes, and so the idea is that this is how to help broken people put each other back together. It's interesting. That's something we haven't really discussed uh, directly in our discussion of pro-social behavior. But a lot of the reason for antisocial behavior is not rational calculation, but personal trauma. And uh, we all have different levels of emotional hangups that make it hard for us to accept certain truths or embrace certain types of people. And so the idea of creating a community culture built around helping each other get more healthy and work through these issues is an interesting approach.
Yeah. So that is that's what's going on with me. Um, what's uh, been happening with you? Uh, well, I'm uh, dealing with uh, some technical issues. You know, dealing with my laptop, which um, I don't don't have it again. Uh, it's been a more than a month uh, dealing with uh, one issue or another, uh, not allowing me to have you know my workstation. So that's yeah, and that impacts you know uh, what I can do. I I can do some with my iPad, but um, uh, the laptop is a completely different experience plus the capabilities that. Um, the iPad doesn't have. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm dealing with that. Uh, and, you know, and, uh, uh, looking for jobs and um, uh, dealing with other things having to do with my situation. Um, yeah. Any luck on the job front? Any, any, no, no, no news on, the, on that front. It just, you know, you have to just keep and uh, not allow yourself to be to become depressed because of that it's hard. But uh, you know, trying to go through that, you know, with some uh, counseling and and assistance from others. So, yeah, plowing yeah. through that. Mm-hmm. So, did you want to talk about uh, cast? Yeah, we had that discussion going on last week, and you had I rambled on for quite a bit. I was curious if you had any comments mm-hmm. or questions. Um, yeah, um, there have been um, several activities or events in the news that uh, illustrate to me very clearly, you know, how uh, there are um, different castes, you know, um, in, you know, in society, you know, um, and uh, dominance or the, or several, you know, white people, um, uh, most of them are invested in the current caste system, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. and um, a, uh, you know, uh, Miss uh, Wilkerson, she touches on um, uh, the fact that these people then vote against their own interests, just to ensure that the world, their, their worldview, uh, uh, you know, you know, it, that's the view that they heard it, and that's the one that they wanna uh, give the children. Um, right. Yeah. So I think the um, right. So I always uh, I rank a little bit at the phrase against their own interests because people have many interests, mm-hmm. and I think when people say voting against, it means voting against their own selfish interests for the sake of something uh, else. Right. Yeah. Like. Uh, for a great example is um, healthcare for all, right? How how would 
any person uh, decide, oh no, I want to, I want to stay with this private on that first doesn't uh, recognize. You know, if I have a pre-existing condition, I'm not accepted. Or if the treatment is too expensive, oh, forget it. Or you can only see certain doctors. And and the the messaging that that keeps uh, uh, we keep hearing is that oh I like I like my um, my uh, healthcare provider, but how can you like that when the alternative you know healthcare for all is you know you get free healthcare. Well, right? so, well, so, so well, I think that's an interesting example which we could. Uh, discuss some more detail because there's many different dimensions of that, um, but it's a bit of a tangent. So I'm not sure if we want to go into that right now. But yeah, because because well, let me ask you. Let me let me push that because people have different mm-hmm. interests, right? Yes, mm-hmm. they would like to have health care. They would like to not pay health insurance. They would like to have a choice of insurance plans. They would like to have. Uh, there's a lot of young people in their 20s who like to think they're immortal and don't want to pay. And the way healthcare insurance is set up. People in their 20s pay more than they use, and people who are older tend to pay less than they use. So there's a generational wealth transfer effect that people can rationally dislike, even if, in theory, they like the idea of having health insurance available. So there's all these different dimensions of what people are are voting for and voting against. Mm-hmm. So that's why. So. That's why it's just like which interests are of themselves are they voting against, and which interests of themselves are they favoring? Yeah, yeah. But, but your point is, is that I mean, a, a, a the, the canonical example is usually um, uh, the Democrats use is that workers will uh, vote against their economic interests in favor of you know rich white Republicans who share their social values and uh, but uh, i think isabel's point was that people will when the, i think her point was that people aren't actually voting against their own interests they're voting against their own immediate selfish interests in favor of their group interest in having the case cast system perpetuated mm-hmm. yeah and so it, it, yeah Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that uh, expansion. Yeah, I haven't read that book, um, but I'm coming. Yeah, I, I mean, but 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 I think the 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 interesting point so is that is that if you're a part if you're even if you're in a relatively lower position in the caste system, you still have a vested interest in the system perpetuating itself, uh, because the 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 danger is that you'd be even in a lower wrong if the system went away or was replaced by something else. Even if, if you are already on the lowest rung, uh, people would uh, well, say that... Even if on a lower rung. Oh. People on the very lowest rung probably are much less invested. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, there's always a lower rung, right? I mean, even in prison, right, there's a whole hierarchy of, you know, good criminals versus bad criminals. And so there's always somebody usually who's worse off than you are. And so there's always a sense in which you still have something to lose. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that's a, a 
very, uh, I would say, pessimistic or, you know, the present point of view, right? Uh, you know, instead of looking, uh, being optimistic and, and thinking of, oh, I should do things that uh, make, that put me in a better position in the future, people try to uh, avoid getting in a worse position in the future. So that, yeah, that's, uh, I guess it's, it's defensive or, you know, safe. I guess it's easier to keep. Well, like, well, well, you know, it's also that, you know, replacing an entire system is a high-risk endeavor, right? So it's one thing to say, you know, if the system was different, I could easily imagine I'd be better off. But if there's a 10% chance or even a, say there's a 50% chance that you would be able to replace the system, there's a 50% chance that you would be somewhat better off and a 50% chance that you would be way worse off. Because if you rebel against the system, um, then you become an outcast. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it is very hard. So the people who tend to, uh, and then the people who are at the very bottom, uh, who literally have nothing left to lose, um, have nothing left to organize a revolution with. That's what revolutions always require, sort of an outsider coming in and saying, I identify with you, uh, let, you know, let me help you organize yourself and take over. And without that, the community is stuck in despair. And it's a very rational despair. Overthrowing a system is hard. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. What uh, people, well, we've had a few uh, really uh, uh, real revolutions, right? You know, you can think of the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution. A revolution impli implies some sort of destruction. So that's well, why. Well, it's people... interesting. Right. So I mean, let's distinguish between economic revolution and political revolution. Because political revolution was definitely a case of. Um, the people rising up didn't, and it ended in an empire. So that was a uh, interesting example. The um, industrial revolution wasn't a revolution in the political sense because it was largely the same people in power, right? The 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 the, the dukes and earls became investors, and while it did empower a new merchant class it didn't exactly dethrone the existing power brokers. It shifted power around somewhat, like in the US it shifted power from the South to the North and was probably a big factor of the, in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, someone said, you know, historically speaking, the only two revolutions that went about as well as you could hope for was um, Mark Antony uh, in the, the Roman, uh, empire, the first four emperors did a pretty decent job, uh, and then the American Revolution. And other than that, revolutions have generally produced states that were as um, despotic as the ones they replaced, if not more so. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can see that. Yeah, even in the foundation of uh, you know United States. Um, what happened, uh, even though, you know, there were no uh, uh, kings and queens and, and, and all that. Uh, so there was one king, um, yeah, but in, on the other side, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, but in, at least in, in the 
constitution and, and all those documents, you know, uh, they, oh, right. yeah. they, you know, there's no kings, there's no, there's no person with absolute authority. There's, you know, right. you know but it's, it's worth noting that the first revolution, the first revision, the Articles of Confederation, they tried to not have any central authority whatsoever, and it was a disaster. Mm. And so they swung the pendulum back towards the middle by having a president and they were extremely fortunate to have George Washington as a man who was so selflessly devoted to his country and not at all interested in personal gain. And everyone recognized that. And that gave them the template for a new kind of leadership. Now, is uh, Congress comes before president, right? Uh, or that's the way it's supposed to be. So, so, so if you want to go to the history of the revolution, which is an interesting question, um, the um, it started out with committees of correspondence. So Benjamin Franklin created the postal system, and so there were a lot of people experimenting with self-government or interested in self-government, and they started talking to each other. So they built a shared understanding of reality, and started having their own different uh, conversations. And then they came together in the Continental Congress, right, where they all gathered in one place and had an interactive discussion. And that led to eventually the Declaration of Independence. And then that led to a series of uh, self-governing entities, committees of correspondence, committees of public safety. Um, and that ended up standing up an entire, mostly decentralized system of governance as a shadow government beneath all the royal governors and British rule. And I think as part of one consequence of that is that one reason the revolution was successful is that they were focused on governing uh, in some ways before they were focused on fighting, which is actually uh, relatively rare. Mm -hmm. Usually the assumption is, well, as long as we get rid of the bad guys, we'll be fine. And the hard part of a revolution is making sure you have something better to take its place. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, you know, going back to the cast uh, discussion, right? Um, uh, the author kind of wants to give us a way to move away from the, or, or away from the caste system, or at least the bad influences that it has. Uh, but uh, we've had um, several of such works, right? You know, or experiments, and mm -hmm. um, it's always or, or um, often such work doesn't take hold, you know, until years later. And you know, for example, uh, uh, capitalism. You know, uh, the works of what is it, John? Smith? Um, Adam Smith. Adam Smith, there you go. Um, you know, he wrote uh, the book and then later um, he was, uh, he took hold. Um, not a, you know, like a very fast evolution, I would think. Um, right, so, and, yeah, I would say that's, and, I think in our terminology, we say it was a disruptive innovation rather than a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And um, now this is the system 
that we have that kind of colors any any discussion that we can have uh, dealing with social class, caste, uh, uh, social relationships. It, it kind of tinges everything because everything is, is tinged towards, well, okay, so what is the most affordable or, or way to do this? Or how do we get the most gains out of these other actions, right? Right. So I think, well, so this, and this is where it gets interesting, right, is um, did you see the article I sent about um, Seth Godin's podcast on industrialism? Uh, which one? I may have posted it on the fleet. Uh, Seth Godin on industrialism. I posted it on fleet like two days ago. Oh, no, I haven't seen that yet. It's a video. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's audio. It's a podcast. Uh, but so there's like there's what's interesting uh, is that he takes a different tack um, and he says um, and he doesn't attack capitalism. He attacks industrialism. And he says, you know, capitalism, in, you know, we're all playing with words, but that's whatever, because, you know, the idea of capitalism initially by Adam Smith was really about division of labor. And that the idea that it was better to, and that, and the importance of technology, right? It's better to own a pin making machine than it is to make pins by hand. Mm. Um, and, but what, um, so, so, and like, certainly, um, so the way Seth Golden slices it up is he defends capitalism as the generous act of making things that people want, um, right? Which is kind of the big difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism, the top decides what people should want. Capitalism, in his use, is sort of market economies, giving, letting people have they want and giving them a way to signal what they want. His villain is instead industrialism, which is the race to the bottom of always making things cheaper. And cheapening people, cheapening products, cheapening the environment, et cetera. And his contrast to that, he didn't give it a name, uh, but I guess we could call it culturalism, is it that our goal is to promote a healthy culture where we treat each other in ways that we'd like to be treated. And that we're always asking not how to make things cheaper, but how to make things better. Mm-hmm. And so that is a uh, a fascinating um, framing of the problem. Um, and what's interesting about that is that we still have a lot of um, uh, emotional attachments to the word capitalism mm-hmm. because A, the alternative was socialism, which nobody's very fond of, even in the U.S. Uh, that's changing a little bit, but it's still mostly a curse word. Um, even if the word liberal isn't as bad off as it was in the 1980s. Um, but the, um, the um, and the other reason, of course, capitalism was how we defined ourselves relative to the Soviet Union in the 1970s, and actually 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, but nobody's really defending industrialism, right? There isn't a huge amount of emotional attachment to industrialism or to, um, you know, ideologies about um you know, people talk about supporting business, but no one really talks about supporting industry so much. So it's an interesting, um, well, Seth Godin is a marketing wizard. I mean, that is his claim to fame. 
And I think it's actually a really useful marketing ploy is to rather than rallying people against capitalism, which is a very polarizing thing to do, we rally people against industrialism. And so as a, one way of working this is, is let's try the same argument you're going to make and let's try using the word industrialism and see if it works. Mm. So you're saying about how it, it makes us focus on always making things cheaper. Yeah, uh, an example of that is the, uh, the use of hydrogen as a fuel, um, right? Uh, the you know we know that hydrogen is clean. You know it, it will be helpful for the environment and all that, but mm -hmm. it, it can be more expensive to. Uh, yeah, and also somewhat dangerous. Yeah, but you know, there's danger in anything, right? There's danger in electricity, or yeah, at least there was until we we learn how to uh, manipulate it safely. You know, right. there's danger in in batteries, right? You know, your uh, the batteries that we have in our phone. You know, so right, but I mean, you know, right, but yeah, but I mean, you know, the 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 reason, I mean, sure. So there are several yeah, reasons why we haven't moved to a hydrogen economy. People have fantasized about it for a long time. Um, and it's one thing to say, well, yeah, people are just too worried about making it cheap, but there's also a question of making it affordable, right? I mean, exactly. If, if, exactly. Right, that's, you, that's exactly my point, that we have this world affordable, affordable when if we just say, hey, hydrogen is safe, it's cheap, um, it's safe, uh, and, and it is uh, helpful to the environment, you know. Right, uh, but, the, the, but the question the, is that, okay, so... But you're saying that, so what if it, you said, okay, we can build a, a really safe hydrogen car and every car costs $100,000. So only the people, so if you wanted a car, you had to spend that much money. Is that a world you would want? Uh, well, um, I would want a world where, where we prioritize the benefit of uh, ourselves and the, and the environment and the longevity of humanity. So. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so, so, so that's a question of creativity. And that's what Elon Musk is trying to do, right, with electric cars. Right, by moving power generation uh, and pollution, at least away from urban cores. And, yeah. you know, I mean, so uh, what, what, why would you want the hypothetical hydrogen future over Elon Musk's electric future? Uh, I, I would want the future uh, is, is now. Elon Musk's future. Well, I, we don't have control over where the electricity, or at least we don't have direct Sorry? control over the electricity from uh, where we get the electricity to charge the batteries of the car, right? We don't have control. You know, it could come from. Um, what do you mean we don't have control? Carbon. The, like, the, I mean, you know, the, individual consumers don't have control, or correct, correct, like the, uh, the especially the consumers. Like, uh, you can't say, "Oh, this." I know that my car is, unless you have solar uh, solar panels in your roof, mm -hmm. and you can guarantee that that uh, you're charging your car just with solar. Unless you can do that, if, if you get the electricity from the from you know from an electric company, you don't know where that company got the electricity from. Well, well, could, well so, I mean, how do I? So the argument is that, sorry, we're switching it from 
a future where, so the question is, is that in what sense does the government, does the consumer, I mean, if hydrogen is made by, you know, buying it from, you know, communist fascists who are using slave labor, I don't have control over that in the hydrogen economy either, right? Just because hydrogen doesn't magically mean that there's no environmental downside or social downside, right? Mm, well, uh, okay. Considering that we have the the, the the fuels versus hydrogen, in that comparison, I would pick up hydrogen. You know, uh, instead of I mean, see, for you, fuel. So, yeah, so, but, but the question is, is that is that actually better for society, or is that just your personal preference? Uh, well, science tells me that it's better for society. My preference also tells me that. Um, well, so, 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 how do you make hydrogen? Actually, there are several ways, right? You can take it from the sea, which you have to inject it. You know, so the raw materials right. is the easy part. Where do you get the energy to split seawater into hydrogen and oxygen? Well, uh, if we are really, in, we're really invested in this, invest in uh, making sure that we have the electricity that we use to, you know, drive that process is also clean. Like, okay, so, well, before... well, yeah, so, so, so you're back to the same issue that you were complaining about with me. Okay, mm -hmm. you can do every, give it enough free, cheap, clean electricity, both hydrogen and pure electric vehicles are fine. Mm -hmm. And with absence that, what's the advantage of hydrogen over, electron, over electric? Right? You may like the idea, but there's no clear moral benefit. Uh, and, I, well, to me, there is. And that's like for people for you know ten people who have ten hard to uh so you have to pick something by which you measure success that everybody can agree on right right and uh, right and there's two ways to do that right mm -hmm. one is through having a deliberative democratic process where people can argue through ideas and issues. The other is by having a market, right? And that's mm -hmm. how people kind of agree what things are worth and they can vote with their wallets and vote with their feet. And um, I agree that both are useful. And right now we have better markets than we do uh, democratic political systems for resolving issues. Mm -hmm. um, or more efficient markets, than not to say fully efficient. There are lots of gaps in our market systems, uh, even as market systems, regulatory capture, externalities, et cetera. And there are massive gaps in our political systems as well. And that is the real world, right? Is that we have, is that, and you know, the, um, the challenge is how do we build better systems, both better political systems and better markets, so that we are able to make I, as an individual consumer, have better choices and then can express values. And I'm in context, frankly, where I am uh, motivated to express my better values rather than uh, narrow, self-interested, self-destructive values. You know? And you know, I think that's the interesting thing about Isabel getting closing the loop. Isabel's comment about how caste, how people vote against, you know, people can be voting against their narrow short-term interests for the sake of the group. But they could also be voting against their long-term human interests 
for the sake of the group. And both of those are, in a sense, pro-social behaviors, um, uh, depending on which time scale you're looking at. Mm. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and so and, uh, the, the point is, is, is that the, uh, uh, the question is, are you assuming that you have an all-wise philosopher king who can decide what's best for people? Or are you reliant on working with people to help them align their interests, their short-term and group interests with the long-term, you know, global interests? So I think that's what you want, right? You want want everyone to voluntarily uh, submit to a system where they're all acting in everyone's long-term best interest, right? Right. Uh, that's hard because uh, you know right now we only have this, and uh, you know we always we almost always see ourselves as part of a country, and so and we have this one country, and you know there's no alternative as to uh, where we go. So if there's a group that doesn't make this that oh, the alternative is. Or to try to convince the other is better, which is you know difficult, especially in this in these times where. Right. So you got a little garbled there, um, but I think you were complaining about the fact that people tend to define their identity in very narrow and rigid terms. I'm a member of this country, this group, et cetera. Correct. And yes, and then they tend to define that in opposition to uh, other groups. And, or more importantly, they they also engage in groupthink, right? Where Mm -hmm. they just assume certain things are true. Um, Yeah. Yeah, like you can ask, you you just mentioned, you mentioned a little bit earlier that People, uh, you know, we identify with capitalism in opposition to socialism, right? But you ask right. most people what what is it that you don't like about socialism, they cannot even tell you what socialism is. All they know right. is well, that, like I said, these are just emotional terms mm-hmm. that people conjure with that don't actually have a lot of intellectual content. Yeah, exactly. And, and, right. and so my uh, point was is that rather than attacking those terms, uh, we, I think this gets back to the larger dialogue or question, which maybe we should talk more about next week since we're running out of time here. Is the goal to coerce people to accepting what's best for them, or is the goal to enlighten people or, or uh, to um, persuade people uh, to act in healthier ways. Uh, close to right. the, are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Oh, is no, the word coerce or persuade? Uh, or persuade. I would think persuade with, uh, but not with, not, like I said, not using emotional term, terminology, but using something closer than facts, uh, history. 
so then you're using the word argue rather than persuade Ooh, to kind of make an intellectual uh, argument. Well, well, I mean, how you promoting alternatives, whatever the solution is, right? You have uh, so we have to trust uh, people. Well, our direction, our situation is not ideal. We have to make it close to ideal. Okay, what is ideal? How do you measure ideal? You know, ways to say, uh, are you healthy? And let's do things that promote health of you know your, your body. Uh, let's do things that go uh, uh, activities that are uh, unhe unhealthy. Um, so one way to get people in in the same path because they suddenly it's not their internal values principles, but it's, us, it's something external. Yeah. Well, you know, external uh, that is not you know mental. So health is something that can be measured. By, by you're either healthy or you, or not. You have some lung disease, or you have cancer, yeah. or or. You know, yeah, so I mean, health, to, me, to me, healthy is just as hard to define as anything else, right? You can uh, define well, diseases, but defining health, I mean, the, the, as always, the gross cases are easy. Someone who's dying, someone who's an Olympic athlete, okay, one's clearly healthy, the one's clearly not. But in the middle, it's awfully, it, it's awfully messy, right? And it's not at all obvious, like... I am maybe 10 pounds overweight, even though I'm within my ideal range. Is that unhealthy? Is 20 pounds unhealthy? And how much coercion or social pressure should I have to be different? And if I say, no, I'm okay with this level of unhealthiness, to what extent are we as a society okay with that? Yeah, that, that's what we have to put in, uh, uh, you know, not how 20 pounds overweight is not terrible, but being six pounds overweight, that is, you know. Right, so the question is, the point is that in any actual system, if you want to make a value statement, you have to have consequences, right? I mean, right now there's a lot of shaming around body image. Is that a good thing? Well, it's good to the extent it helps people keep their weight down. It's bad to the extent it marginalizes people and makes them, you know, psychologically unhealthy. Right, so there's, and I think this is the the larger point that maybe we will table for next week because I really need to be going. Is that, you know, if we want a revolution, it's easy to see the areas that are black and white. Like, okay, this thing here is clearly wrong. We'd like to stop that. But okay, is the what price are we willing to pay to stop that? Right, and is that price worth it? And I think that's kind of the original question about a revolution. You know, is the uh, likely benefit greater than the likely cost. And that is a hard decision, right? And the, because we don't know, you know, uh, especially given great uncertainty. Right, and okay. so, that's one reason why there's a thing called the um, a, the, the science of muddling through. Uh, it was actually an article somebody wrote, is that you know there's a really strong philosophical case to be made that um, the 
um, a lot of the ills in the world were caused by somebody who had a good idea, and then they tried to impose it at scale before testing it and getting people to buy in on it. And that therefore, it's actually um, almost praiseworthy to not have grand theories, but to just make incremental changes that you test out. And I'm not saying I fully buy that theory, um, but it's a compelling argument given the data, right? <clears throat> and so it's worth thinking about that, you know, if you want to do a bottom-up revolution rather than a top-down one, you have to do it as a series of incremental experiments, not like, this is the right thing to do, why can't I just get everyone to do it? So anyway, uh, maybe we'll leave with that unless you have any closing thoughts. Mm, yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, that, that sounds good, and we can discuss it next time. All right, that'll make a good title for next week as well, but we'll stick with Outcast for now. All right, thank you, Ernest. You thank week. you, Ernest. Next week. Bye. Bye.